Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With your host, Hal Shirtless. This show is heard on WBCQ, The Planet, every Tuesday and Thursday evenings at 7.30 p.m. It's also rebroadcast on our YouTube channel and our Podomatic channel. And it's brought to you by Camp Constitution, CampConstitution.net. And we have a guest on the line that had a little trouble calling in. How you doing there, Carrie? Hi, Hal. Good to be with you. Yeah, same here. Carrie McDonald. And Carrie, you are a writer for the Foundation for Economic Education, as well as the Heartland Institute. And you have authored at least one book, correct? That's right. I have a book coming out next week called Unschooled, Raising Curious, Well-Educated Children Outside the Conventional Classroom. Well, I liked the topic when, I, uh, when we friended each other on Facebook. I said, wow, this is really – I noticed that you're not keen on the vouchers, which I think is a good thing because a lot of conservative-minded, liberty-minded people think vouchers are the way to go. And well, I'm not a compl- I'm a homeschool dad, um, and I, I tell people I'm a disciple of the late Sam Blumenfeld. Uh, Sam was a dear friend of mine, and uh, we actually I inherited his library, or most of it, his papers, and with that we created the Samuel Blumenfeld archives. And Sam told me, I think the first almost within the first year I met him back in '88, '89, never send your children to a public school. And of course, the word government school. So, anyways, tell us, tell the listeners a little bit about your background, if you could. Right. So, I have an undergraduate degree in economics um, and a graduate degree in education policy from Harvard. Uh, and I'm a senior education fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education, fee.org, uh, which is the nation's oldest free market think tank. Yeah, and how did you survive Harvard University? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I first became interested in homeschooling and the idea of alternative to school and alternative education options when I was an undergraduate in economics and really began to see sort of the power of monopoly compulsory mass schooling and became interested in alternatives. So for a senior seminar, um, I, in, as an undergraduate, I had an opportunity to do a research project on a homeschooling family. I had a classmate that had a family member oh. who was homeschooling and lived nearby, and I was intrigued. I, you know, I went to K-12 public schools in Massachusetts, uh, never knew a homeschooler. At the time, homeschooling had just become legally recognized in all 50 states just a few years prior by the early 1990s. Uh, so it's still a relatively sort of new phenomenon, hadn't quite hit the mainstream the way it has now. And I remember walking into this family's home, this homeschooling family's home, and being completely enchanted by what I saw. It was just this real authentic learning and sort of genuine immersion in the people, places, and things of their community. And what was really fascinating was that it was a, such, such a stark contrast to that same semester 
when I was doing a um, student teaching practicum at a local public school elementary school, uh, second grade classroom, so the same age range of the homeschooling children and the public school children. And the two learning environments could not have been more different, um, you know, just sort of seeing that kind of command and control, permission to use the bathroom, hands up mm -hmm. in the air to ask a question, all of that, um, very, very different from this really joyful learning that I saw in the homeschooling family. And that's what triggered me to go to graduate school in education policy and, and to become even more interested in education freedom and, and alternatives to school. Well, uh, it's interesting because you mentioned compulsory education laws, which uh, came out of Prussia in the 1840s. And uh, I'm sure you know Horace Mann traveled there, and he came back to the United States and said, that I've seen, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, of course, I've seen the future, and it works. And uh, within, I, I think it took a little while, but within, uh, what, two or three decades, every single state had compulsory education laws. And I think that uh, in Massachusetts, we were the first, and that's supposed to be a, a bragging point, like we were so progressive. And uh, you're right that it's a very structured format. Sam Blumenfeld would call the public school or the classroom an obsolete dinosaur. And he said that back in the early 90s when you were just sort of discovering. Uh, tell us about when, did you have any preconceived notions or prejudices, uh, prejudices against homeschoolers when you first did your research? Well, of course, I'm an, a homeschooling mom now, so I can admit this um, freely with a little bit of my tail, uh, tail between my legs, right, is uh, my first question for that homeschooling mom, you know, back in the late 1990s was, um, well, is your daughter socialized? <laughs> and, mm -hmm. That's right. uh, and of course, homeschooling But should be now, is time. your daughter a socialist? <laughs> I know, right. So, of course, I think homeschoolers get this a little less frequently, fortunately now, because homeschooling has become so popular. There's now around 2 million homeschoolers nationwide. Um, almost everybody knows a homeschooler. So it's, a, it's much you know, more of a mainstream option. But, but still, that, that question was there. And every time I hear it uh, and the receiving end now, I think back to that to the question that I asked that poor mom back then. But she, you know, so graciously, you know, responded that, that her children were getting socialization in, in an authentic way throughout their community, through their volunteer efforts, through um, their civic, you know, volunteer or civic uh, engagements throughout the community, through the library and museums and um, general encounters with shopkeepers and community members. So there was real, a real sense of, of that kind of socialization, quite different from what I was seeing in this classroom, which was, of course, this age-segregated second-grade classroom right. where you're with a, hand, a handful of teachers and the same static group of same-age peers, um, which really isn't what we would think of as socialization. And I don't know about you, but I remember being a kid in school, and, and if we were talking in class, the teacher would say, hey, stop talking. Socializing is for after school. Um, that's right. Of course, for homeschoolers, that's everything that we do. It's sort of multi-age. Um, you know, all kinds of different people throughout the community, through activities that the kids are doing, uh, after school programs, like sports that kids might be engaged in. So, you know, real, real socialization, not this um, institutional socialization that we see in schools. Well, one of the things that I've observed is that homeschoolers, uh, like you said, in public schools, 
if you're in the fifth grade, you don't talk to the sixth graders because they're better than you, and you look down upon the fourth and third and second and first graders. And um, when I see, I, I can almost tell a public school person, a youngster from a homeschooler, just the way they interact with adults. You know, you go up to a homeschooler, and there's some exceptions. Not every homeschooler is outgoing, of course. That uh, wouldn't be right to say that. <clears throat> but you can, they look you in the eye. They'll shake your hand. Uh, one day I was in Troy, New, ha- uh, Troy, New York, and I was at a uh, little coffee shop meeting somebody, and there's this little black fellow, probably about 12 years old. And he was, where, actually, he wasn't a homeschooler, but he went to a, uh, anyway, he's in this nice little, you know, uniform. He holds the door open. He's very cheerful and wishes me a nice day. And I said, uh, Redemption Christian Academy. And he looked at me, and the mom was, how did you know? I said, well, I could just see the countenance, you know, see the, the spirit of him. I get, so I drew that conclusion. And I do that with the homeschoolers, too. I just, uh, we just had a table at the uh, Mass Hope Homeschoolers Convention, which we've had now for the last nine or ten years. And uh, one, of my, one of the young men that I met there, uh, have family that I met there about four years ago, he and his family now are, are uh, attendees at our camp. And he was such a great help reaching out to people, I mean, engaging people by the table. Uh, is very, and actually, he's 16. He's graduated from high school. He's going to start college. And I actually know a homeschooler that graduated from his homeschool class at the same time he graduated from the local community college. And, you know, there are homeschool support groups uh, that meet on a regular basis. And there's, so there's all kinds. And then, my, like all my daughters, I, I've homeschooled my wife and I, four of our five. The oldest went to a private school, one, one boy. And all the girls have danced all these years, and they fit in very well with their, with their peers uh, and their contemporaries. In fact, it's the public school kids that they seem to have trouble getting to know to because they're reserved and not as outgoing. Right, and I'm really glad you brought up the um, the kind of dual enrollment, the um, homeschool and uh, community college piece, because I think that's something that so few parents know about, and it makes so much financial sense, um, and 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 makes sense to free adolescents, particularly older teens, from the confines of compulsory math schooling. And so you're right that a lot of homeschoolers are able to get an associate's degree at the same time their peers, their schooled peers, would be getting a high school diploma. And then they're able to enter college having already paid quite inexpensively for that first year, some cases even into the second year of credits that are then transferred in. So there's huge college savings and the fact that now you're free from being treated like a toddler at 16 or 17 in a conventional mm-hmm. high school. Yeah, one of the um, this uh, one of the things that my <laughs> – Sam Blumenfeld rightly pointed out was that uh, most of, uh, and, and this has been my observation, that most edu- this education is really institutionalization, that uh, they pass a law that says you have to have your children in this particular school from, from um, you know, September to, to uh, June and so many hours a day, as if legislators really know the needs of your particular child. And when I went, I went, I, I went through the Boston's public schools, which weren't the worst in those days. They're terrible now uh, compared to other schools. And, you know, we had a couple of study periods uh, in my high school time. And my senior year, we were doing the same history that we did in the first year. And that's what I was catching on. I said, this is something that's not right here. You know, why do we have to be? And, you know, the, um, 
Sylvia, is it the Sylvian, Sylvan Learning Centers? Am I pronouncing it right? Sylvian Learning Centers? Sylvan, yeah, I think that's correct. Yeah, they advertise. They'll say that they can advance a student a whole year in one month or two months. So if, you, <laughs> if you're lagging behind in your math and you want to advance a year, they can do it within a month. And I says, well, gee, if they can do that in a month, can't they do a four, a four years in four months? And so why do we have to drag this thing on? It's almost as if they want to keep children out, uh, young people out of uh, the workforce and keep them in high school. And then four years in a college where they go into debt, they get out of college and they still haven't learned the skills necessary for, uh, you know, for, for making a good, getting a good um, job or starting their own business. You know, the idea of, oh, you better get a good job but not the idea of when to start your own business, you know, become a free market person. Right. And I, and I think you've, that's really, you've hit the nail on the head there because, um, you know, as you said, Horace Mann and the compulsory math schooling model that um, emerged in Massachusetts in 1852 has prevailed now for well over a century and is just completely inadequate for the needs of the innovation era, for the realities of our 21st century economy. Um, the World Economic Forum, for example, found that some of the most in-demand jobs and skill sets today didn't even exist five years ago. Mm. And yet we have this sort of archaic system of compulsory math schooling um, that really just isn't serving young people well, so that they're, they're leaving now, of course, in, a, in an economy that is increasingly being populated by robots and artificial intelligence. And they're asking, you know, humans to compete with these robots, but yet they've trained these humans to be very similar mm -hmm. to robots. And so what I always mm -hmm. say That's is, right. you know, we don't, you know, what are sort of these human qualities? What are, what are these essential human qualities um, that distinguish us from robots? And there are things like creativity and ingenuity and entrepreneurship. Uh, and those are the kinds of qualities that we don't need a curriculum to teach kids these things. We just need to stop crushing their creativity out of them um, through forced uh, compulsory schooling. Uh, now tell us about your uh, forthcoming book on the, uh, on the unschooling. And it, incidentally, I, was, um, I never met him, but John is a John Holt who was based in Cambridge, uh, had a, I think the, the, the school still exists, or his entity still exists, the unschooled movement. And, of course, there's the famous uh, Sudbury School in Framingham, Massachusetts, or I should say the famous unschool. And I got a chance to read the, the uh, book, uh, the founder, the man who founded the, his book on the subject. And although I'm not, I would say, an unschooler totally, I am sort of, most of the way there because it has been my philosophy that a child or a young person will learn what they need to learn not what they're forced to learn and i had that attitude with my uh, who's my daughter who's now in liberty university you know we she was really didn't like the abeka program because it was a little too intense and and then you know i said you know it was just a little frustrating and then finally she said okay what do i have to do i want to be a nurse well this is what you got to do and she said, okay, I'll do it. And, and she did well. We did hire a tutor to help her with some of the, some of the gaps, so to speak, which I guess is going to happen. And uh, she's now excelling at Liberty University. So um, uh, that was been my philosophy. My, my youngest daughter, too, she said, I want to do this for her. She wants to be a beautician. 
she might change her mind. And I says, well, uh, do I need math to be a beautician? I said, you certainly do. I said, how do you know what you're going to charge the customers or how many ounces to put in the, you know, the various mixtures you use and so forth. So she's learning math now because she wants to learn it, not because she's forced to learn it. That's right. I mean, I think that that's really the key uh, factor with unschooling is non-coercion. Um, so I sort of use a generous definition of unschooling as a catch-all term for disentangling education from schooling. Going back to Horace Mann, up until the mid-19th century, education was separate and distinct from schooling. And schooling was one way to be educated. Parents may, you know, sort of go in and out of the schools from time to time and use some classroom learning. But there was a much broader definition of education through apprenticeship programs, through home-based education, through what they called dame schools back then, which were like these That's little right, nursery yeah. schools in, the, in your neighbor's kitchen. I mean, there was just an array of education options, charity schools for the poor and so on. And it wasn't until, you know, Horace Mann and his infinite wisdom, who, of course, as you know, was also a homeschooling <laughs> dad, uh, so you know, quite hypocritical, um, creates compulsory mass schooling, and then for and then since then now has fused education with schooling. So what I try to do in the book is really disentangle those two things again and say, look, there is a, there are a lot of ways to be educated, and in fact, schooling, at least in its current format, is this coercive way, like you say, where you're you're forcing people to learn and do something that you think that they need to know and do, which of course, again, given technology and access to information and knowledge and the changing needs of our economy, um, you know, just is inadequate, I think, for, for the kind of current realities that we, that we encounter. So I use the unschooling term much more broadly, um, but you're right, John Holtz, uh, who was an author and educator, one of the early leaders of the modern homeschooling movement, coined the term unschooling in 1977 in his, his second issue of his inaugural um, newsletter for homeschooling families called Growing Without Schooling. And interestingly, John Holt's definition of unschooling was simply parents taking their children out of school. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, so he, again, also used the term quite broadly. I think it's, it's now sort of morphed over the decades to be, um, to be an approach uh, to education that's much more focused on self-directed learning, non-coercion, and not replicating school at home. So that's sort of the distinction between homeschooling and unschooling. Um, in so much as homeschoolers might replicate school at home, unschooling says, no, you don't have to do that. You can break free from that whole model of schooling and look at education in a much broader way. Uh, it reminds me of a quote by Mark Twain. He may have been one of the original unschoolers. He said, don't let education get, a, uh, get in the way of, uh, or don't let a school get in the way of a good education. <laughs> Something to that effect. Right. I mean, there's so many quotes and so, um, you know, one of the, the people I, I feature in the Unschooled book is Thomas Edison, who went to school for the first time when he was eight years old. This was in, again, the mid-19th century, um, was um, told by his teacher that he was addled, which was sort of fuzzy in the brain, that he was never going to amount mm -hmm. to much, couldn't <laughs> sit still and pay attention. And his mother, who was a teacher, just simply rejected that and said, well, forget it. So he only lasted a few weeks in school and then really became a self-directed homeschooler. He was 
um, in his basement, you know, conducting experiments and saving his money so he could go buy supplies at the local pharmacy. Uh, and then, um, you know, one of, his, one of my favorite quotes is by one of his scientists that worked for him in his lab years later. And he said, I, I don't, if, if, if Edison had been formally schooled, I don't think he would have had the audacity to create such impossible things. I think of the Wright brothers, too. Now, they may have had formal education, you know, in their younger days, but if they went to an engineering school, there was no way they would have accomplished what they did because the engineering schools were saying, this can't be done. You, you can't fly something that's heavier than air. It's impossible. And, and the same thing with right. medical breakthroughs. So I, you could imagine all of the great medical breakthroughs and, and innovations were not made by people who were necessarily trained in, in today's academia. I mean, wasn't the patent office, uh, they had, the man who ran the patent office in 1903 or something like that said, everything that's been invented has already been invented. There won't be any new inventions along. <laughs> and that's, you know, it's like a typical bureaucrat, you know, that's all they could see is, uh, you know, the next, the next week or the next day. So, um, so now you, you homeschool. Uh, do you, do yes, you do I have the, four uh, children, yeah. <clears throat> And so there must be uh, the, I'm sure they're young teenagers and younger te than teenagers. They are 12, 10, 8, and 5, and they've never been to school. Yep. That's great. Well, you know, I tell my, uh, I, I made a pledge to my children that they would never set foot in a public school. And I had to break that pledge only because there was a church that was using, renting out a, school, a public school on a Sunday. And we went in there, and then they do their dance recitals in Westwood High School. You know, so they've been into a public school, but they've never been in a public school for any kind of instruction or teaching or whatever. And it's interesting. Exactly, uh, yeah. My, my girls do um, are very big into martial arts, and so their tournaments oh, really? are often in element public elementary schools. So they're always intrigued, um, and they they attend a self-directed learning center a couple of days a week for homeschoolers, which is another thing that I feature throughout the unschooled book. Are these self-directed learning centers and unschooling schools and other kinds of hybrid homeschooling models um, and programs that are sprouting across the country and even across the world um, that provide so much more flexibility and that I think also open up this educational philosophy to more families that otherwise might not be able to access it. Um, some of this self-directed learning center that my kids attend um, in Somerville, Massachusetts, is they only go a couple of days a week, but there are some kids who are able to go full-time if their parents are working or they need, you know, sort of a more full-time um, opportunities, but it's uh, all non-coercive, self-directed, um, nothing like school. That's right. It's, it's that notion, for example, that you, my, history was my favorite topic. I loved history. I still love it. Um, but you get you get into your topic and then the bell rings and you get to drop everything right right in the middle of it. it's like you're running a race and uh, oh you got to stop but you still have a hundred yards to go to the finish line but you got to stop and you got to pick up your math book or you got to go to the next class and that doesn't really help that's what they call the Carnegie minutes I think the Carnegie units or what have you but that doesn't really uh, that doesn't bring excellence I mean you're right in the middle of something and you got to stop and with the unschooling, you could simply focus on history for a whole month or math for a whole month uh, and then pick something up a, a, as needed. And I think where, where the parent the educator would be, just try a little direction. Okay, well, maybe you should 
focus on this just a little bit because you're focusing on this too much. <clears throat> and uh, also uh, the classroom, the today's classroom is um, uh, really a model of confusion where you go in there and there's stuff all over the walls. Uh, the, uh, the, the students are kind of huddling together. They're in little groups. You've got goldfish. Uh, you've got stuff hanging from the ceiling. You've got stuff on the windows. Uh, and, and I think that leads to a lot of confusion where the old style classroom, it was not nearly that confusing. You had the teacher's undivided attention. But uh, I know that when we first started homeschooling, we did try to replicate the classroom. We made that mistake. We did it for a little while. I figured, you know what, this, we don't really need to do this. But we had a room in the house where we would, uh, we would have, um, you know, the ABCs and, you know, pictures and make the little school desks. And we thought, no, we don't, we don't want to do this. So we took that out. And, uh, you know, this, uh, it, it, my, my, what, we only, we're only homeschooling one child now, a 14-year-old. Everyone else has, 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 uh, has completed. But she has a desk and a computer, and she has her homeschool books. And, um, and interesting, too, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, uh, there weren't as many opportun- and options. But thanks to technology, uh, there's online, there's interactive online entities, there's uh, videos and such. So you don't have to be a you don't have to have a PhD in every single academic discipline to be a good homeschool teacher. Well, that's right, and that's where I really feel like unschooling and self-directed education is just simply where education is going because it's just how the rest of us are now learning. I mean, you know, if my husband needs to repair the toilet, what does he do? He goes onto YouTube to figure out how to do it. And you know, right. if I need to figure out what I can make with um, you know certain ingredients, like for dinner, I can go on and check it out. So that whole democratization of, of knowledge and information through technology, I think, is really driving this, this um, self-directed learning uh, model. You think about it, you know, schooling used to be the, the service that, you know, schooling used to be was that that was where the teacher was, that was where the books were, that was where the knowledge was. Um, now, all of that's around us. We can pick and choose our teachers through online media. We can um, figure out what we're interested in and explore it in a variety of ways. There's online, free online learning platforms like Khan Academy that make uh, learning so accessible to so many people. Um, so I just think that, that, that the sort of brick and mortar kind of compulsory math schooling model is, is just not going to last very long given the technological advancements we now have. That's one of the things I'd love to see. This edu- there is an education mafia and a monopoly through this compulsory education laws, and uh, they're still building these schools. And it's interesting too. We we hear so much about sustainability and sustainability, and we got to have a lower carbon footprint. But when it comes to the school bus, they have no trouble with these all over the country, five days a week, and sometimes six days a week. These old yellow school buses go and pick these poor children up so they can bring their bring them to this big old building. Uh, but I think the model is it's not necessary anymore. It can all be done uh, in, in home, or most of it can be done at home. Um, what do you say to right, the right. Um, what, what do you say to the uh, let's say the middle class parents where they both have to work? What do you say to them when say, well, we can't homeschool because uh, my husband and I both work? And we just can't do it. So, what what do you say to them? How, how can they still homeschool having a schedule like that? Well, I think I have sort of two responses to that. The first is that there um, there are these sort of co-ops 
and um, so many other homeschooling hybrid models and self-directed learning centers so that if there's any flexibility in the parents' schedules, um, then, you know, they might be surprised at how they'd be able to make it work. And there's even some, you know, evidence that suggests that parents spend so much time on school-related activities and helping their kids with homework and getting ready, you know, for the bake sale and all these other things that, that are time mm -hmm. commitments that they're currently devoting to the schools that if you add it all up, it's actually less time to homeschool. Um, particularly where you're where you don't have to do it between you know eight and two or nine and three you know homeschooling happens all the time and can you know be a much more flexible uh, learning option so that's sort of the first point the second point is sort of contradicts what you said earlier I am an advocate for education choice mechanisms and education freedom including vouchers um, mainly because of, of you know, sort of how Milton Friedman who's of course the Nobel Prize winning economist who popularized the idea of school vouchers in his 1955 paper and his organization EdChoice continues to do a lot of work with this as um, you know recognizing that one of the ways that we start to tip the needle one of the ways that we start to push away from compulsory the compulsory monopoly of, on schooling is to empower parents through various ways of enabling them to get back some of their tax dollars um, whether it's through education savings accounts or vouchers or tax credit scholarship programs, there's a whole array of these mechanisms that starts to break down the monopoly. Right now, U.S. taxpayers spend almost $700 billion a year on K-12 public schooling. It's just a massive amount of money for questionable results. And if we can give taxpayers back some of that money um, to decide how and where they'd like to use it, I think that's a win. Yeah, my only issue with the vouchers, it's a transfer in kind, and uh, the government may have some control over whatever choice you decide, whether it be, especially if it was a faith-based faith uh, education. That's my major concern. You know, or it's, I'm going to take the voucher and take my kids into the, the Baptist uh, Christian school, and, uh, you know, well, it's a voucher. So that's, that's the only issue. But, yes, yeah, 700, you say $700 billion is spent. That's probably more per student than anywhere in the world is that is that yes. an accurate it's, um, it's the highest spending for sort of um you know questionable outcomes on international comparison tests uh, american students are have actually declined between 2000 and 2015 um performance has gone down and even on uh domestic national tests like the nation's report card um, that comes out every couple of years that or every year sorry that that results show that that reading scores for example are flat um, and you know so we're spending all this money this huge surge in education spending and not getting great results um, in fact the national center for education statistics shows that particularly for, for children of color the results in public schools are not good at all in fact uh, I think it's only 14% of African-American eighth graders are at the proficient or above reading level. That, that would be a great topic in itself, uh, uh, but we only have a few seconds left. Where can re, uh, the listeners learn about you, your, your writings, and get a copy for your book or your schedule? You, I know you have some speaking engagements coming up. Yes, um, if you visit my website at wholefamilylearning.com, um, you'll have access to all my uh, social media outlets and um, various links to speaking engagements and podcasts and all that. So wholefamilylearning.com. Okay, can you say the, whole, yep. Okay, great. Whole, wholefamilylearning.com. 
Thank you so much for being a guest on our show, and uh, we hope to meet you someday soon. And, folks, uh, thank you for listening to Camp Consultation Radio on WBCQ of the Planet. And until next week, may God bless you. Thank you. Bye. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.